The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors, or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, stop, uh, stop, uh, stop making me nervous here. We're talking about OLAP in a few minutes. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Jeff Maciolik, here to announce show number 156 with guest Andrew Brust, recorded live Friday, December 9th, 2005. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and now offering hands-on VBNet and ASPNet classes remotely online at www.franklins.net. And by Telerik RAD Controls, the most comprehensive suite of components for ASPNet development online at www.telerik.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers, online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who just put 500 pounds of fruitcake in the mail, to his mother-in-law, Carl Franklin! Digital blood, without any pain, gotta get enough points. Thank you, thank you, thank you very much. Welcome to another stellar episode of .NET Rocks. Thank you, Jeff. And, uh, you know, what can I say? It's cold and miserable here in New London, Connecticut. Just pounded with sleet and muck and yuck and snow and nasty weather today. But uh, you don't want to hear about that. And you'd like to hear from my cohort in uh, Vancouver, British Columbia, Mr. Richard Campbell. Why, Carl, it is a beautiful, sunny day here in Vancouver. <laughs> Bite me. Oh. <clears throat> <laughs> actually not, we've been under the snow for the past week or so it's yeah, this is the first say, nice day we've had in a while yeah i was gonna say you've had you had your share early so oh yeah we did and it's and mostly real serious fog like that san francisco kind of fog where you can't see anything for the whole day You're just but, surrounded uh, by the reason fog. it burned off today it's been beautiful so um what have you been up to this week sir I've been back at work and finally starting to feel like I'm at home. You know, I, I yeah. didn't realize it initially, but it's we were away for a long time, and it's taken me a while to sort of get anchored again. You could say that again, Richard. I've spent the last few weeks just doing nothing but dishes, 24 hours a day, 24-7. <laughs> I do she the saved dishes. them for you, did she? Do the dishes! I just did the dishes. <laughs> do them again! <laughs> no. <laughs> I know it's hard to imagine, but it was a month ago today that we were in Vegas. Yeah, I know. It is hard to imagine. Yeah. Ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Well, uh, not much happening that I know of in the news um, locally or in the .NET world. Not kind of quiet. 
right now. Uh, I think we're all in post Visual Studio 2005 launch shock. You got that right. Although yeah. I am preparing for my talk at the launch event in Boston. Kind of fun how that worked out. Originally, Tom uh, Tom Robbins came to me and said, "Hey, man, it's a rock band theme. The launch." And maybe we could get you and your band up there. I was like, great. Um, how much? He was, how much what? And I'm like, well, money. I mean, you know, I got to pay. The, I don't care about me, but I got to pay the band. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, we don't uh, yeah, have any money for the band. <laughs> okay. For your next yeah. great idea. Now, he wanted to, but uh, apparently wasn't in the cards. It, w- it was just some idea that he had. I guess it wasn't like something there. Like, not everybody gets a band. It's not in the launch budget, you know? Yeah. So it would have been fun, but oh well. Speaking of 2000, Studio 2005, uh, we're getting some really great emails back about uh, some of the issues that people are having or non-issues they're having around uh, Studio 2005. I'm really looking forward to putting together this show. Yeah, absolutely. And... uh in January, we're gonna ha- we're gonna talk uh, to some of these people who've had these issues or non-issues, and you know we'll we'll try to separate out what's real from what's not. I'm looking forward to that show too, Richard. And I'm really appreciating the fact that there are a few emails coming in where people are saying, "Hey, things are going well. We've right. moved up our app to the new version, and things are great. I don't understand what the problems are." Right. Should be an interesting show. And you uh, bet. Speaking of emails, we got some other emails. This is some feedback on last week's show uh, with uh, Deb Carada from Daniel Reich. Uh, Hi, Carl and Richard. I'm just listening to the Deborah Carada show and found a little bit of wrong information. About 51 minutes into the show, Deborah says that the data in a control is not saved into the property until the control's validate event occurs. Uh, this is not true. If you open the data bindings advanced window in the properties window, you can set the data source update mode to on property changed instead of on validation. Otherwise, great show. Thanks, Daniel Reich. Thank you, Daniel. That was a, a great little tip there, not only for us, but uh, for everyone listening to the show. And it uh, just goes to prove you what a great community we have out here. You know, we learn something new every day. Yeah, there's even more features than you knew about. Uh, this one came in from Kim. Hey, DNR crew, what about a forum to discuss each DNR show? ASP.NET 2.0, although amazing, is making many feel mighty dumb. So if we can discuss some topics on each show that may be good, a focus on whatever was presented, etc., these are some good ideas. Keep on keeping on, Kim. Kim, great idea. In fact, we are doing a complete revamp of our website for 2006, and uh, we're, we're looking at Community Server to, to sort of have a more interactive uh, thing going on. We're also looking at, uh, you know, Mr. Dax is busy with some new graphics and stuff. So, you know, stick around. We're going to have a lot of new stuff and in, in forums are in the works. And I love the idea of having a topic per show so that we can, well, have a whole other place to look for commentary on our last show. Exactly. And this email, Richard, uh, came in from Gustavo Cavalcanti. And if you remember him... Uh, Richard, he was the guy in New York who was thinking about starting a user group in California. Right, right. Remember we asked him to uh, keep in touch with us and let us know how it went? Well, here it is. Yes. Carl and Richard, after meeting with you guys in New York City and in San Francisco and talking to people from the Ineta, uh, from Ineta, thanks, Bill Zach, I got really motivated about starting a .NET user group in the Fresno, California area. I put some effort into it, and it looks like it'll really happen. 
Like me, a lot of people here are anxious to get started. So I am glad to announce that the first two meetings of the CentralCalifornia.net user group are scheduled and will take place on January 11th and February 8th at Fresno State's Business Center at 6.30 p.m. on Wednesday night so people can go right after work. On January 11th, we'll have Gerald Wash, Microsoft Evangelist, presenting some new .NET 2.0 features, type enhancements, generics, typed resources, exceptions, diagnostics, and security enhancements. And on February 8th, we will have Woody Daman Pewitt. Woohoo! Woody! Yeah, Woody. For more information, please visit www.centralcal.net.com. Or for the Shrinkster Addicts, shrinkster.com slash 9MX. Since 97.5% of my excitement about .NET came straight from .NET Rocks, I thought it would be great if you could make this announcement on the air. I really appreciate your help and support. Thanks, Gustavo Cavalcanti. And uh, Gustavo, what can we say? We're, we're really proud to, to help out and to, to offer our support. As are Congratulations, the Gustavo. You rock. Congratulations. So uh, I guess we should introduce uh, Andrew. Andrew, good old friend of ours, Andrew J. Brust, is Chief of New Technology at CityGate Hudson Incorporated, a Microsoft Gold certified partner specializing in business intelligence and custom database applications built with .NET, SQL Server, and other Microsoft technologies. Prior to joining CityGate Hudson, Andrew was the president of Progressive Systems Consulting, which he founded in 1994 and merged with CityGate Hudson in 2004. Andrew is Microsoft's Regional Director for New York and New Jersey, a contributing editor, a contributing editor to Visual Studio Magazine, a regular speaker and conference chair at VS Live, and a featured speaker at other conferences throughout the U.S. and internationally. Andrew has over 15 years of experience programming and consulting in the financial, public, small business, and not-for-profit sectors. Mr. Brust is a vice chairman of the New York Software Industry Association board. Welcome, Andrew, again. Greetings from Greenwich Village. Yes. I remember, not to start off on a bummer, but I remember when uh, you know the World Trade Center uh, got run into by a little airplane that uh, I immediately thought of you. You're one of the, you know, the people that I know uh, in the business in New York, and I think I remember talking to you shortly after that. Yep, you were one of the first messages that, uh, the sort of checking that you're okay messages that came in on my BlackBerry. I remember that pretty well. Yeah. What I, I also remember that BlackBerry stayed up the whole time and nothing else did. It was, uh, it wow. was canny. Wow. So, There's an interesting story I'll, right it'll there. It'll be all the more ironic if they get shut down. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see how that goes. So you mired in the slush too, Andrew? Uh, Yeah. Yeah, more than mired, especially because down, down here in the village, as opposed to up in Midtown, where the streets are wide and, and straight, everything's a little crooked and narrow and not terribly well plowed. It's, uh, mm. I mean, it's not a rural setting, to be sure, but it's mucky. Yeah, so. ew. And uh, you uh, and Stephen Forte uh, together are the RDs in the area, is that it, or for the New York area? That is correct. Actually, we have Scott Watermassick in New Jersey now as well. Okay, so the three of you are the the New York. Three of New us Jersey. share the New York and New Jersey region taken taken together. Yeah, but I Steve think you guys do. Wa- you Steve do, lives you on do. the Upper East Side, which down here we call Siberia. <laughs> so, he's close. 
and yet so far. <laughs> if you got to change subways to get to him, it's too far. Yeah. You got to take like three trains. You can't get there from here. It's fast. <laughs> it's faster to go to New London and come back, honestly. <laughs> now, the last time you were on the show, um, you were Progressive Systems. This is a company that you started, your consulting company, and you've been, you know, as as the bio says, you know, doing your thing for a good ten years or so. And then uh, somebody, CityGate uh, Hudson, uh, bought you guys out in 2004? Gate Hudson knocked on my door, and uh, we thought there would be some good synergies. Um, ironically, I think our company, even though we were a, a five- or six-person company, depending on how you count, we had, we had a really rich relationship with Microsoft, although we were not an official partner uh, to speak of. And, and meanwhile, CityGate Hudson was a gold-certified partner. Um, not necessarily with uh, with some of the some of the relationships that you get from being a regional director or an MVP. So we thought sort of putting everything together would make sense, and we were all yeah. interested in going after projects and technologies that kind of scaled past uh, where we were in number. Um, and it's it's worked out quite well. We're we're all really happy there. Virtually everybody from Progressive came over. It's got to have been a real change for you to go from worrying about operating a business to just focusing on new technologies and moving things forward. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, those who know me well, and, and including both of you, know that uh, I'll 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 worry no matter what. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, and part of my part of my um, my mission there is is business development. So I certainly worry about bringing in business, but uh, it is not certainly not the same as. Uh, Sort of keeping everything everything running and sort of being cook chief and bottle washer uh, all at once. Um, but yeah. it's 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 nice to take a step back and it's nice to also kind of represent a group that can really uh, deliver on implementations that are a lot larger um, than than the six person company could. And you know, sort of apropos to tonight's topic. CityGate Hudson had long been a specialist in, in OLAP and business intelligence, and um, it, that's been a, a growing interest of mine really since SQL Server 7 came out. Um, it's especially an interest of mine now that SQL Server 2005 is out. Uh, so to be able to sort of work with the firm that, that was really pursuing that kind of development work um, just seemed like an excellent opportunity. So, again, it's worked out really well. It seems to me that Microsoft almost slipped OLAP Server into SQL 7 secretly. They never talked about it. It was just there. You had to install it separately. It wasn't part of the main install. You had to go looking for it to get it. Yep, all yeah. that's true. I mean, it was actually an acquired product from an Israeli company called Panorama that still exists and still produces very important uh, third-party front ends to uh, Microsoft OLAP. And uh, you're right. I mean, in SQL 7, OLAP services, as it was then branded, was was almost completely a separate product. Um, it, it happened to be on the same CD. It, it, you know, in effect, it was a separate product bundled with SQL Server. And unless you were doing things like reading Brian Moran's column in, in SQL Server magazine, uh, the whole thing was kind of a, was kind of a big mystery. Um, but there was rich functionality even back then. There was actually pretty good integration with pivot tables inside of what was, I guess, then Excel 2000. Um, but it was it was quite the well kept secret, and that was 
that was borne out by every session I did at VS Live on OLAP. You know, I'd, I'd, come, <laughs> from doing, I'd come from doing a data mining session in the, uh, excuse me, a data binding session in the next room with a couple hundred people, um, and I'd move over to talk about OLAP, and it was a nice kind of uh, intimate group of about seven people. Um, <laughs> that is starting to change now. I wrote some materials for OLAP way back then as well, back in the SQL 7 age, but I never did them as conference sessions. And now I think I was doing a conference in Australia where they had a couple of local speakers and one of them flipped and, and ran out of the building. So they had it suddenly had a hole. I said, has anybody got anything to present? And I said, well, if you're really stuck, I have this OLAP stuff. It's not really a session, but I'll just do it if you like. And so there I was standing up in front of an audience and I did like a 45 minute whip together a cube just to show what it would do. And halfway through, just as the cube started running, a whole bunch of guys got up and left the room all at once. And I'm like, well, what's going on? And I found one of them at lunch and said, I'm, I'm sorry I, you didn't get the topic you wanted. He goes, no, no, no. I loved it. I had to go out and call my boss right away. We got to use this. <laughs> That's excellent. I'm glad, I'm, I'm glad you got that reassuring explanation afterwards. I'm sure you... <laughs> so he got so excited, he had to go, he had to go hit his PC and try it out. Um. Yeah, building building simple cubes really isn't that hard, and even simple cubes give you um, really useful functionality really quickly. Um, it's one of those technologies seems to jump out at people. Once you get a cube up and running and you start doing that twisting and turning, people can get what it does for them. Yeah, and I think what they get, what they really get, and it's 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 kind of a location joke. You kind of have to be there, but when you understand that you can keep asking different questions and get the results back almost immediately, uh, as opposed to trying to run some of the same queries through a relational database where you'd really have to wait a while, um, it opens up new possibilities because you don't, you don't have to be shy about the questions you're asking. They, um, the, the answers come back quickly enough where you can really strike out and experiment. And, uh, you know, the, we used to call this whole field decision support and that, um, I guess that term has largely uh, gone into hiding, but I, I think it's an excellent, uh, very descriptive term, much better than something like business intelligence, which really yeah, I always thought that was a little generic. At all. Or OLAP, online analytical processing. What does that mean? But what, what these technologies do um, is help you master information rather than data to the point where you can, you can actually make intelligent decisions um, with a with a much more kind of agile uh, operation in doing so. What are the kinds of uh, things that you're finding people most want to do with with their cubes? You know, what kind of information are they looking for? What are the big? Uh, what are the top five? Top five. Well, uh, I can certainly think of the, the top, perhaps the top two, and I, I bet some others will enter into my head afterwards. Um, but one really important example, actually, is an application that Progressive wrote going back, gee, it's over five years at this point, um, in good old classic ASP, uh, so you know it's over five years. And this is actually the software that is used by CIO Magazine to do their monthly tech poll. Awesome. And what we did was we threw in, just as an added extra, um, an automated building of a cube so that they could, instead of just looking at what percent of people 
uh, picked option A, B, C, or D to question number 72. They could drill that down by the results of questions 1, 2, 3, or 4, which typically were what size company are you, um, what industry are you in, uh, what, what uh, managerial title would you classify yourself in. And what we did very intentionally was we didn't make that look like it was an OLAP application. We didn't try and bombard them with all kinds of, you know, uh, uh, drill-down ex expansion and contraction uh, kind of pluses and minuses in the user interface. We simply presented all the options as selections in a drop-down, and then we gave them back their answers in a graphical format. And to this day, they use that functionality in their press releases. They do... Um, kind of a narrative on the results and talk about where they're seeing specific trends in the IT industry and sort of amongst which sectors of the industry. And they're finding that really useful. And I think that's a perfect example of what this stuff can do is it really gives, it gives you insight and it, and it, it does that through a kind of a methodical technology. So it doesn't, it doesn't have to be this intimidating premise of sifting through the data manually and really trying to get your arms around it, um, you can do that really fast. Um, CityGate Hudson is also um, involved in putting together a number of systems for a very large international bank for their letter of credit operation. And they use actually a combination of relational technology and OLAP technology uh, globally in all, of their, in all of their centers to um, get immediate uh, metrics on uh, how quickly they're resolving problems, how quickly they're processing transactions, and then they can drill down if there's a problem area. They can drill down pretty much real time and see what's going on. And then, you know, the folks who are, who are really in the trenches who are kind of in middle management can immediately address any, any glitches operationally. Um, and I think that latter part is um, really important because in that case, this isn't just the analysts in the back room um, using this to gain insight. These are, you know, these are people in sort of the rank and file, if you will, using uh, business intelligence to do things operationally and make things more efficient. Um, so those are those are two really. Uh, really important examples, I think. And then there's all kinds of things you can do with analyzing sales data, um, analyzing uh, web metrics, um, and all kinds of things where drill-down analysis really starts to become important. You know, there's probably quite a few more of us out there who uh, who don't really have any, uh, any sort of experience with OLAP or, you know, three-dimensional data. What is for just to back up a little bit? What is the you know the primary organizational difference between a relational database and, and a cube? Um, that's an, uh, a good question, and and the answer I think can really just demystify a lot of things very quickly. So thank you for asking it. Basically, of course, relational databases consist of tables, and and tables store data in a format of rows and columns, obviously. Yeah. Um, the premise of, of an OLAP cube is that you store data not just across a row and a column axis, i.e. two dimensions, but across multiple dimensions. 
And not just three, right? I mean, you said not multiple three, dimensions. Right. That is one problem with the word cube um, versus table. Cube is obviously a three-dimensional object, but OLAP cubes are, in fact, multi-dimensional, uh, very often more than three. Um, in fact, in most cases, probably, I don't know, at least ten and oftentimes, and especially now with SQL Server 2005, you're going to see cubes with many, many more dimensions than that. Um, effectively, what you do is define what are called your measures, and these are really the numeric pieces of data that you're going to be interested in analyzing. And then you define your dimensions, which are the things that you want to drill your measures down by. So typical examples of that would be a geography dimension, which may be a hierarchical, excuse me, a hierarchical dimension where you have country and then region and then a, uh, a state or a province and then down to a city, or a time dimension where you break things down by year, quarter, month, and so forth. And then after that, it becomes kind of specific to your business domain. It might, you might break things down by supplier uh, you might break things down by product. If you were looking at web metrics, I suppose you might break things down first by top-level domain, um, and then perhaps by uh, uh, you know the internet backbone or the search engine that got somebody there. Um, any any really any thing that you want to use as a way to taxonomize your data can work really nicely as a dimension. Is dimension the right word? Uh, because I, I think yeah. of length, height, width, time, and then from there on, my mind goes, uh, Well, you know? and of course, yeah, and when you think in terms of, when you, remember when you first tried to understand time and space and four <laughs> right. dimensions, and yeah. your, your brain probably had that same reaction. So for that reason, I would say, yeah, it's the right word. The, the word cube is really, really a bit misleading, though. Okay. Um, yeah, but along came Stephen Hawking said, no, no. Eleven dimensions. Yeah, right. And here it is with with OLAP data. Same problem. There's as many dimensions as you can think of. Different ways to slice the data, and and you can combine them too to make it even worse. That's true. You can stack two dimensions onto one axis when you write your queries. Um, and uh, but you know the way I like to help people feel a little more at home with the idea of having more than two dimensions is actually to have them think of an Excel uh, XLS file, a workbook file, right? Because yeah. if you think of it, you've got rows and columns in a spreadsheet, right? But then you've got multiple tabs going across the bottom. And those tabs, in effect, uh, represent the third dimension. And then if you think of having multiple XLS files in one folder on your hard disk, that would, in effect, be the fourth dimension. Oh, I see. And then multiple folders you could think of as the fifth multiple disks, multiple machines, you get the idea. So really, once you go past uh, the second or third dimension, it's, it's, it makes sense not to think of how you would represent that geometrically, but rather just think of it as uh, successive levels of subdividing and aggregating things together. Right, so they're, they're essentially paths, right? There are essentially paths, and, and how you represent that in your user interface is, is really up to you. Uh, Drop-down lists oftentimes work quite well, but I would also say that in most OLAP applications, even though the cubes may have you know, t multiple tens of dimensions, the queries tend to return things over 
two dimensions right. over a row's axis and a column's axis. Have you ever seen, you know, 3D DirectX graphical representations of, uh, you know, of, of data in multiple dimensions? Sometimes. And, and when readable. the technology first started, uh, you know, uh, making its appearance in the Microsoft world, uh, you were seeing third-party, what were then ActiveX controls, that would try and uh, allow you to, to represent data at least on three dimensions and, and sort of give you a UI that, that looks a little bit like a Rubik's Cube, I suppose. Mm. Um, there are also all kinds of visualization libraries out there that, that try and do that for you. Um, but in reality, I think most human beings like to think of things uh, in, a, in a matrix kind of a, right. kind of a paradigm and then and then like to think of things as series of matrices. So obviously the kinds of data that lend themselves well to this kind of storage are things where there are many different variables that have effects on the outcome of a query, right? That's right. That's right. And then, of course, that sort of begs other questions like what about data mining? And I don't know if you, if you guys want to get there yet, um, but I'll tell you that in SQL Server 2005, data mining is becoming an extremely important and serious um, piece of technology. In, in SQL Server 2000, it was there, and it was still intriguing, don't get me wrong, um, but it was really almost like a prototype. It wasn't really quite a serious offering. It's more, more kind of like testing the waters, and I'm sure when SQL Server 1000, 2000 came out, Microsoft wasn't thinking it would be the better part of six years before the next release. Yeah, so they thought they'd get another whack at it pretty soon. Um, so we had to wait a long time, but uh, I think people who dig into it will will see that it was uh, it was worth the wait for for really for the data mining stuff alone. It's uh, it's really quite compelling. And as long as before we go tearing into that, maybe I mean you've actually set the stage really well here for recognizing the fact that the actual ability to cube data to put it into that model is only one part of the equation. You've used that data in other ways with regular UIs. And we've sort of stepped around this implication of the typical task of OLAP, which is that searching for new information from data that OLAP does really, really well, but is a, actually a very specific kind of task, a different kind of task than necessarily what anybody else may want to do. You know, that's the job of the analyst rather than the job of the line guy who just wants to be able to look at that, a certain chunk of data and easily twist it a couple of times. Right. And, and then data mining something else on top of that as well. Yeah, data so mining really... It, yeah, let's define that while we're at it. I mean, you, look, you can, uh, and, and I suppose SQL Server 7 bore this out since there was no data mining functionality at all. You can do a lot of very important and very valuable BI work using OLAP unto itself. Um, and if you're energetic enough, you can use OLAP um, to do a lot of discovery into your data and to get to the point where you're seeing some patterns in your data revealed. But if what you're really looking for is patterns in correlation, for example, it, you know, if we want to go beyond the question of breaking sales down by country uh, and uh, uh, certain demographics, uh, for example, the education level of our customer. But we want to start looking for correlations between certain demographic groups 
and certain buying habits and certain uh, volume of sales, for example. You can do that with OLAP on your own, but if that's what you're really interested in doing, then you really want to be using data mining because data mining will actually actively search out those patterns for you and tell you what they are, um, which all by itself is good, but, but that's actually only the beginning because once those patterns have been discovered and what are called data mining models are built that represent those patterns, you can then take new data for which you have let's say, just the demographic information. And you can feed it through the model and have the model predict which customers may tend to buy at which levels. And as it turns out, the programming to do that is actually uh, very close to the programming, uh, the uh, sort of ADO.net uh, bread and butter programming that we do just to bring stuff back from tables in a SQL Server database. And the end result is often an unwanted sales call during dinner. <laughs> well, you need to be on the do not call list, obviously. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no. But you know, the more salient point is recognizing when a new customer comes to you, this customer is probably going to be a very valuable one because they match the profile of other very valuable customers. So we should you know, make them certain offers. We should shape their offer according to uh, how we know customers like them buy. Exactly. And it's not all commerce, you know, that there are interesting medical applications of this technology as well, right? If you can take data from, mm. uh, from clinical trials and look for uh, certain correlations, for example, groups, uh, you know, uh, specific people who may suffer uh, severe side effects or, you know, conversely, uh, patients who may do really well with, with, a, with a drug that's still in an experimental stage, um, that's, that's data mining you know, plain and simple. And actually, the, the, the specifics of it are escaping me, but I believe there's a white paper out there from Microsoft Research, maybe about a year old, that talks about how they were able to use SQL Server data mining technology um, on some clinical, uh, some clinical data uh, regarding AIDS research. And uh, they came out with, um, I think, some very useful results. So it, it, this isn't all about making money, although there's nothing wrong with making money. Yeah. Um, but really, you know, any premise, any enterprise where data is important, data mining um, can really add whole levels of value. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's kind of the idea, is we've been building these systems, you know, three of us maybe have been building them for, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 years, but the industry as a whole has been doing this you know, since the 60s, we've been building systems that effectively collect and maintain data transactionally. And this data just keeps getting stored up and stored up and not much is done with it other than, I, I suppose, running, you know, running, running that data through, through really voluminous reports. But the idea that we can take that asset and really um, derive some, some, some specific meaning, some really important value out of it, um, is 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 a really compelling thing, you know, especially mm. <laughs> in an age in IT and in technology where we're you know we're trying to get real return on investment. That's uh, that's what this technology has written all over it.
listen to the show, you've heard me talk about ASP.NET tools from Telerik at T-E-L-E-R-I-K dot com. They've recently released a new version of their RAD control suite, Q3 2005, and I'd like to tell you about it. Telerik RAD control suite is the most innovative and comprehensive tool set for ASP.NET development allowing professionals to build web solutions with the UI richness and responsiveness of desktop applications. The latest milestone release, Q3 2005, is the first on the market to bring full XHTML 1.1 and accessibility compliance with WCAG Level A and Section 508, thus enabling developers to build standards-compliant web applications easier and faster than ever. Added to this are key updates to four of Telerik's most popular products, RAD Editor, RAD Grid, RAD Treeview, and RAD Rotator. RAD Controls is also available with an annual subscription option for all updates and new components added to the suite within a year of your purchase. Hey, did you know the .NET Rocks website was done with the Telerik menu? That's right, if you use the menu on the left-hand side, you're using Telerik's products. So go check them out at www.telerik.com. Have you ever uh, written programs that key actions off of results from sort of real-time, uh, you know, OLAP queries? Is this is this a common thing to do to check, uh, for lack of better word, tolerances or or? you know, levels, use them as indicators for, to fire off other processes? Well, some of that's getting done at the, at the bank that I mentioned to you um, that we, we've built a number of OLAP systems for. Uh, doing OLAP in real time is by itself a pretty tricky question. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's actually been the weakness of the technology historically. Well, let's talk about that, the technology. What, what do we okay. have today? What do we have today in our tool chest to, uh, to do this, even not in real time? Well, um, let's talk about what we had up until a few weeks ago or a month ago when SQL Server 2005 came out. And I guess when I say we, I guess I mean those of us in the sort of Microsoft technology community. What, uh, What we had was the ability fairly easily to define our cubes and to build our cubes and to with some effort, schedule jobs that would process those cubes and update the data within them on some regularly scheduled basis. But what that typically meant was that our cubes, at best, had data from yesterday. Um, mm. And it, at worst, had data from last week or last month. And while intellectually it was a straightforward matter to, to update those cubes, Logistically, it wasn't straightforward at all. It was actually pretty disruptive um, because processing a cube um, involves a lot of CPU resources, and it also um, it also involves some fairly expensive queries on the database that the cube is being built from. Uh, well, you're essentially grabbing all of the data from yesterday and munging it up to make a cube out of it. Uh, that's got to hurt and take a while. Right. And so what we had in SQL Server 2000 analysis services was kind of a choice. You could uh, uh, physically store your cube in in a truly multidimensional medium 
really the native storage medium for analysis services. And, and, and if you did that, you'd get really good performance on your OLAP queries, uh, but you'd, you'd have a lot of work ahead of you in terms of updating that, that cube on a regular basis. The other, um, the other end of the spectrum was to actually have the basis of your cube be stored in a, in a series of relational tables. Um, effectively, all of your low-level fact data, that's sort of all the data that's at the lowest levels of each of the hierarchies in each of your dimensions, <clears throat> pardon me, uh, that would be in relational tables, as would all of the dimensional definitions, as would all of the aggregations at the various levels within those dimensions. So that was good because to merely update relational tables um, was a less expensive, less daunting task. It's still, you know, non-trivial, but not not as uh, involved as sort of reading, doing what Richard just said, reading everything and updating those cubes. So, uh, but you could you could have much more real, a much more real time experience if you use the relational medium. Um, and it's of course recognizing that. In the end, OLAP is not inventing any new data. It's just analyzing the data in your database. And in that sort of real-time mode, you're just hitting the database for the data on demand. That's right. And actually, if, if you think about OLAP, o, OLAP cubes are pretty dumb. Um, they're, they, they're not doing much. Um, the magic that, or the apparent magic of getting an aggregation or a drill down satisfied immediately is simply brought to bear by the fact that a number of those aggregations were simply pre-calculated when the cube was processed. So when you yeah, query no the OLAP there. cube, it it's it not really doing any work. It's just fetching stuff that it that it already had stored in many right. cases. Right. So I mean, it's one of the reasons that OLAP cubes can get so huge. Is it simply calculating every permutation of every pair of dimensions or more? For every measure, it's just a lot of data. It can be colossally huge, right? Unless you design your aggregations so that you know you're not ballooning it that way. But then there's a lot more on-the-fly calculation that has to happen when you query. Mm. So with 2000, those were sort of our two extreme choices: do everything in a relational medium and have a more real-time capability, or do everything in a multi-dimensional medium and have sort of make peace with the idea that your data was going to be stale. Um, what we have in 2005 is a technology that mitigates the, 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 the compromises on each side. And in effect, what it lets you do is design your cube to be uh, stored with, uh, with relational tables, but have SQL Server 2005 analysis services do the work of creating a cache in the multidimensional medium that stores part of your cube based on queries that had been run or that makes, in effect, in the background, makes an entire multidimensional copy uh, of your cube. And uh, then you can do all sorts of things through query notifications and other means so that if the data in the underlying tables is updated, that cache gets invalidated and the thing gets rebuilt. So worst case you're at a place where nothing has been put in the multi-dimensional cache and you're hitting the relational version of the cube, but at least the data is up to date and you're, you know, you're getting it back 
still pretty seamlessly. And then what happens is, is like a demon in the background, it's building a multi-dimensional version for you. So this is this is the biggest feature in SQL 2005 analysis services, in in my opinion, and it's, it's called proactive caching. Hmm. Cool. Uh, and I, I, it's it's gonna. If used properly, it's really. I think it's really going to revolutionize the revolutionize the way uh, BI is used in industry, um, because it takes away entire levels of. It takes away barriers of entry. Right. No longer do we have to kind of throw up our hands and say, "I'd love to build a cube, but you know, for me to get the the, the recency and the data that I need, uh, it's just going to take too much politically and too much." Um, in terms of resources to make it happen, and this this uh, this version of the product really changes that in a very fundamental way. Hey, can you tell us any stories from uh, from your real world experience where you know this uh, these new tools have solved uh, helped you solve a problem that you weren't looking forward to solving before? Well, well, given that the the product's only a few weeks old, no, I I, I don't have those stories just yet. But I will tell you. <laughs> I will tell you that in the, it, once again, in the case of that large bank that I mentioned to you, we have had to do um, a lot of work. Some of it, you know, really, really kind of intriguing and, and neat. But we've done a lot of work so that um, the cubes are getting kind of constantly refreshed in the background, and we're, you know, we're doing that ourselves. We we're, we basically uh-huh. set up some of our own. Um, uh, message queuing mechanisms so that when you know when really crucial data changes, we'll go ahead and we'll build another cube and we'll swap it in once it's done processing. Ouch! And that was a whole lot of a uh, whole lot of plumbing on our side. That um, well, I mean, it added a ton of value. It it, it made the system of sure. uh, workable in an operational context. But let's be honest, the number of the number of projects where people are going to have the will and the budget to do something like that is limited, and I, I think Microsoft recognized that, and that's why they embedded this kind of technology in the product. Yeah, really lowered the entry point, the cost to getting into something like that, a little more dynamic. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And again, I think what they've also eliminated are kind of psychological barriers as well. You know, it's just it's suddenly umpteen different things are easier. And it's not just in terms of the proactive caching and the recency. It also comes down to the way you design your cubes. Um, In 2000 and in in SQL 7, the way you had to design your cubes was uh, basically you specified which relational tables you were going to build your cubes on. And then once that premise was established, then you kind of picked and, and chose things to be measures and dimensions. What that meant I found that I found setting up cubes in the beginning like that was a huge whiteboard exercise. It was days of discussing what was important, what are we going to measure, what data have we got, where is it going to come from, right. sort of pull that picture together. Right, right. So you do that on the whiteboard, right? But then, but then you kind of need to retroactively go back and make sure that you've got relational tables in a in what's called a star schema base a star schema. A database that can make all the stuff that you did on the whiteboard possible, right? Right. You have to take a step backwards, uh, deal with sort of the precursors to that design, and then go ahead and design it. And in 2005, that workflow changes because you can actually design your cube in effect in a vacuum. 
you don't need to you don't need to base your cube on any physical uh, database. You mm. can instead simply define your measures, define your mentions, and then you can do the opposite. Once you've de- designed your cube that way, you can generate the relational schema that needs to be there mm. to make that cube possible. Wow! And then that's cool. All, all you really have to do is is some ETL, some transformation and loading to get the data out of your um, transactional database into the generated schema that you've just built. And, of course, now we have SQL Server integration services to do that ETL. Um, And, uh, honestly, I haven't delved into SSIS as much as I I really would have liked to at this point, but that's a much richer technology than than its predecessor. So, uh, really, at all... At all levels here, we've got a much richer story. All right, I'd like to be the acronym police here and ask you to find some of those terms: ETL, SS, what? What sure. was that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, gl- I'm glad you're. I'm glad you're policing that uh, <laughs> that area. Um, sometimes I'm an outlaw, but I try not to be. So e- ETL and I, and I know for, all the acronyms, uh, so I, they just wrote right past me. <laughs> ETL stands uh, for extract, transform, and load. It's basically. It's, it's the premise of getting data out of one database, uh, changing its structure, scrubbing it a little bit, and pushing it into another database. It's what uh, DTS was designed for originally, okay. DTS being Data Transformation Services mm-hmm. in SQL Server 2000 um, and in SQL 7 before it. And, what, uh, and, and, and the, the baton of which has been passed to what is now called SQL Server Integration Services, or SSIS, that isn't. That is sort of the new data uh, transformation services. Okay. Um, but it's, and ETL it's, is the generic term that describes what both of those things do. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And ETL, like many things before Microsoft uh, took a look at it, was a, a a product category in and of itself. Still is, but to uh, to a large extent, Microsoft has commoditized it first with DTS and 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 now with SSIS with mm. those SQL Server integration services. You sort of touching on this point, but in the Microsoft has really turned OLAP into a single database product. It's very SQL Server centric, but up until now, we've been pulling data from all kinds of different places. And in fact, one of the big roles of that whole OLAP product was this concept of data warehousing, of consolidating information from lots of different sources. And ETL played a huge role there, trying to drink draw that stuff together. Uh. Uh, absolutely, and 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 truth be told, uh, you, the the sort of database agnosticism that you spoke of is is really still accommodated. I, I would say that the tool set are uh, the tool set is much more tightly integrated into the rest of SQL Server. Um, and if we have time, we can talk about all the OLAP and data mining stuff that you can do now in SQL Server Management Studio. Um, but when you set up your data sources, you can you can still point to any database that you can get to with a, uh, an ADO.NET provider, an, o, an OLADB provider, or even an ODBC driver. Hmm. So you can pull data from all these different sources, and then you, you aggregate them at the SQL Server point to go into your OLAP cube. You can actually aggregate them in the cube, right? You you. You don't really need an intermediate SQL Server database as a as a resting point for that data. You can pull it in directly. Cool. So, what's Microsoft's competition out there in the OLAP world? Um, dwindling. 
Sorry, that wasn't really your question. <laughs> but, what was it? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, historically, um, I crush you. <laughs> <laughs> historically, companies like uh, Hyperion and ArborSoft, which was acquired by Hyperion, and other companies that have specialized in statistical software, um, like the SAS Institute. Uh, those companies have had very specialized, very high-end read, pricey uh, OLAP products, which for a long, long time uh, survived because, quite honestly, they still had a lot of interesting features that Microsoft didn't have. I think Microsoft's MO on these things is usually to say, let's let's look at the sort of 60 to 80% of the features that people are actually using and let's let's just let's just hit those. So, you know, on a on a on a feature by feature matrix, uh uh Microsoft OLAP still had some some liabilities. Um m- most of those at this point are gone. Um so the SASs of the world and the and the the Hyperions of the world and also uh not not insignificantly the competing products from IBM and Oracle, yeah, um, those are really all starting to uh, pale by really, comparison. Yeah, those are really a platform choice, right? Um, I, certainly, if you're if you're buy, if you're bought into the Oracle stack or the IBM stack, you're gonna you're gonna be more interested in in their right. OLAP offerings. Um, but uh, you know, given that Microsoft includes OLAP. Um, in most of the SQL Server SKUs, at at no additional uh, at no additional charge. Damn them! That's very that's <laughs> very powerful. But the the features and the programmability story on the Microsoft side is is uh, is probably the most compelling thing. Yeah. And what is now starting to happen because we've gone at at our at, at my new company at CityGate Hudson, we've sent people to um, to OLAP and, and BI conferences around the country for for a while and we have them we kind of make it a requirement that they come back and sort of do a report and actually take pretty copious notes in the sessions and what we used to hear over and over again was you know i found it uncanny that i went through this entire conference and either never heard microsoft mentioned or i heard it you know getting bashed left and right and what you're now starting to hear from some of these olap think tanks these sort of bi uh, wonks is is that the Microsoft offering is is very serious indeed. So this is really a watershed release, and in mm. fact, I've been saying for about a year that the hallmark of this release of SQL Server is all the BI stuff. Um, talk all you want about the SQL CLR and the service broker and all the things you can do in the relational database. Mm. Uh, I don't think that's the real story. I think the real story is what you can do with OLAP and data mining and, 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 and by extension, reporting services and integration services. And ne- next year, you're going to show us some of this stuff uh, in, in, on screen, right, with uh, DNR TV? Uh, I'd love to. Yeah, that'd be great. I'd love to actually see what this stuff looks like. As you can probably tell, you know, Richard's the guy in this conversation with the OLAP experience and not me, but... Uh, I still think it's fascinating. I'm st- I'm just trying to ask questions that aren't too rudimentary for most listeners, and yet, and you know, there are a lot of people like me out there who 
who don't have the experience yet and are interested, always interested in learning something new. You know, Andrew, we, we focused on the SQL Server or OLAP side of things. That's the service side. Uh, what about clients? I really haven't seen anything from Microsoft uh, new that's a really compelling client. What do you use to uh, to work with on the client side for this product? Well, I, I have a couple of different answers to that question. I mean, given that this is .NET Rocks and our, our, our listeners here are, for the most part, .NET developers, um, I think what people here are going to be most excited about is that you can hit your OLAP cubes and run queries in the MDX query language and bring back the results actually just using ADO.net. There is a provider for uh, Microsoft uh, analysis services that is implemented as an ADO.net provider. So it extends the typical provider interface to give us you know, uh, very OLAP-specific objects like dimensions and measures. Um, those are actual objects, but... Um, you can ignore all that and, in, in effect, just use uh, data readers, data adapters, and, uh, connections, and data sets to bring back uh, results from your OLAP queries. And suddenly now everybody's an OLAP developer. They may not even know it, but it's, uh, it's well within their capabilities. And by the way, if you're at all a student of any of the data binding technology, be it um, in 1.1 or in 2.0, be it in Windows Forms or in ASP.NET, um, you can apply that directly as well. So for the developers, I think they're going to find that one of their more interesting clients is actually ADO.NET. Um, but that's kind of a coy answer to your question because I, I, I think you're asking about, about products. No, but I think you, it's an excellent answer you've given, and and a lot of the skills they've already got are all they need. Building the forms the same, dealing with data bindings the same. The ADO provider is very much the same. The only thing they really need to know is MDX. Now, what right. is what does that look like? I mean, well, it it looks like SQL. Really, um, it smells like SQL. It talks like SQL, but it's not SQL. Is there such a thing as an MDX stored procedure? Wow, that's a that's a whole other chapter. Um, <laughs> there is. See, it actually. pays to be naive, Andrew. This is the. Uh... <laughs> there is because uh, well, everybody's heard this banner headline that you can now um, use the the .NET CLR to do all sorts of interesting things in SQL Server, right? Right. Stored procedures, triggers, functions, aggregates, um, and user defined types. That's wonderful. Although I actually think. That's more of a footnote than a headline on the relational side. Um, ironically, what's been treated as a footnote, if that, is the fact that there's actually a CLR programming model for OLAP now as well. Wow. So you, huh. you can actually write um, functions that use a server-side version of the ADOMD.net library, and that actually is just the ADO.net library for analysis services, but there's a server-side um, server uh, uh, component to it. You can use that in component library assemblies in .NET and then load those assemblies up into your cube, just like you can load assemblies into a relational database. Wow. And then suddenly, all the functions that you've written in VB or C-sharp are callable from an MDX query. Hmm. Wow. So, so for the 
this is a really a pretty amazing uh, offering, you know. I mean, uh, from a guy the, like me, the programmability even, I can it just is really quite literally boundless at this point. Um, there were always things you could do by writing certain kinds of server-side MDX pieces of code so that you could have some notion of, of server-side programmability, uh, basically through these things called named sets and, uh, and calculated members or calculated measures. But that, that was pretty limited. Those still exist, but now you actually have the ability to do, um, to do CLR programming on the server. And uh, uh, you've got the same security model that you have in the SQL CLR, so you know things are is sandboxed by default. It's turned off by default, um, but suddenly you can add all sorts of interesting business logic to uh, what you might be doing in an MDX in an MDX query, and you can write functions that are aware of MDX concepts like uh, sets and members and so forth. So in your .NET code, you can actually write procedural code that constructs a set member by member and then returns that set to MDX, which is a language that thinks in terms of sets. So suddenly it's getting a set back, and it, it just looks like it's a, it's a language feature, but it's actually something you wrote yourself. That whole That's... thing is a digression, actually, because, <laughs> because Richard's original question was, what are you going to use for a client? I, I want people not to overlook the fact that SQL ser- uh, excuse me, Excel, pivot tables, and charts are extremely able clients against Microsoft OLAP cubes. Uh, there is, you know, quite literally drag and drop simplicity in using these things. And because both charts and pivot tables in Excel are available as programmable components through the OWC, uh, Office Web Components Library. You can actually bring these things into .NET Windows Forms applications and with some effort into ASP.NET applications as well. Um, So if you want to hit your cubes and have a pretty nice interface while you're doing it, uh, have a very customized application that you've written yourself, but you don't want to muck around with MDX, uh, and, and OLAP concepts per se, you don't have to because you can use the pivot table as a component in your application. Have you ever heard of uh, standard store procedures creating a sort of uh, interface level for mere mortals to to uh, to to cubes through these um, you know ADOMD server side components? Me- or is that even necessary? Let me let me kind of parse that question. You're you're asking about uh, relational database stored procedures that would actually call through to query and all that. I guess that doesn't make much sense. Well, I, I mean, it, interestingly, with the SQL CLR, that's now possible, right? Because possible, but is it is it something that makes? I mean, I'm thinking of just a way to abstract all of that away from a, a non OLAP programmer who just wants to make a simple query. I have to give that some thought, but Carl, you may, even if accidentally or unwittingly, you may have happened onto um, a, a, a very serious uh, member of the list of things for which the SQL CLR is actually well justified. 
That's my job, um, man. And, and well used. <laughs> right? Because, I mean... Funny, I was going to go the all, other way, because I'm very nervous about what store procedures inside the SQL CLR are going to be like. So by the same token, I'm pretty nervous about what MDX CLR behaviors are going to be. You're going to have to be very careful about what you write there, because you don't know how it's going to get called. <laughs> yeah, I'm less worried about the MDX CLR stuff, only because I feel like the the potential audience of people who are going to try and use them is, is limited. Although, you know, maybe we blew that on this show. You guys have a large listenership. Now maybe <laughs> we've opened the floodgates, right? But, uh, yeah. Well, but now look what you did. It's not the kind of thing that Microsoft is promoting as a, as a mainstream model, the way they are SQL CLR stored procs. But, but Carl, you know, what you just mentioned is interesting because, you know, these demos where we're writing a CLR stored proc that does a select star from customers, of course, that's an abuse of the technology. Right. And we're looking for more kind of arcane, obscure places where it really makes sense. That actually may be a pretty good one. Well, let me know how it goes, and I'll send you I'll, a bill. Uh, I'll, yeah, I'll uh, <laughs> you know, keep you informed. I'll tell you where to send I'll the check. keep you in the loop. Thanks, yeah. Carl. Sure. That's my job, man. So we've got the you can build your own client. We've got Excel. Do you really see Excel as a capable enough client for the analyst? Or is it more just being able to dip in and grab a little bit of data? Um, it's uh, it, it's enormously capable. I mean, there, there's absolutely sort of limits and 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 ceilings that you run into when you're using pivot tables. But I would say the vast majority of what people want to do with their OLAP cubes can be done with pivot tables. Um, but what we haven't started talking about yet is that there's actually a brand new client product from Microsoft for hitting OLAP cubes. Really? Um, it's called Business Scorecard. So it's, you know, they keep, kept changing the product name. The, the, the code right. name was Maestro. They've never the done that before. product name is Business Scorecard Server, I believe. Um, and it kind of ties together a little bit of Excel and a lot, and a lot of SharePoint and Microsoft OLAP. Um, into into a pretty pretty compelling kind of product that really is geared around building dashboards and portals uh, as interfaces to OLAP cubes. And what's especially interesting is that the product is not from the SQL Server group; it's from the Office group. Mm, neat. And I think that's I, really I think the big thing that the scorecard brought to the table was a lot of prefabricated infrastructure on the kind of information that a business person would want to look at from their database. Um, it, it, it does. And I, I got, I got to admit, I, I have a lot of ignorance around the product, so I'm not going to be able to pontificate too hard on what it, what it does and what it doesn't do. Um, but, uh, it, it already, it had a precursor. It had, um, there was something called the, I think it was called the Business Scorecard Accelerator. It was, in effect, a free tool that was based on MSOLAP and based on SharePoint. And, and in effect, what they've done is they've added a lot of capabilities to it and, and productized it. And it actually continues to work with um, Analysis Services 2000 as well as 2005. But it does take um, the concept of something called a key performance indicator, which is actually right. a native concept in 2005. Um, it actually provides that on the front end, for, even for SQL Server 2000 cubes. Um, 
and and basically takes KPIs, which are all about looking at your measures and making a judgment about them. If I'm looking at a measure within a particular uh, time period or a particular geographic region, for example, and if it's above a certain number, I think we're doing really well. If it's below a certain number, I think we're doing really badly. And if it's somewhere in the middle, I think we're doing neutral. Mm-hmm. And just kind of visualizing things along those lines so that, uh, so that business users can get a very, very quick and insightful look at, at all their data and all their operations. It, it, it's, based on, it's based on that. That's kind of what scorecards are all about, except I'm grossly oversimplifying what scorecards are. Andrew, how about in the third-party tool category? I mean, uh, Uh, I think of things like uh, Dundas uh, gauges and charts as being really good uh, controls just, you know, for, for that kind of, you know, taking the temperature of the system. Digital dashboard. Dundas has a good product. They have a chart product that is specifically designed for hitting OLAP cubes, and it actually does a lot of the same stuff that an Excel chart would do. Mm -hmm. Um, The problem with the Excel chart is it's running on your client. Mm -hmm. Um, Even if it's in a web page, it's a control that's running on your client. And what the Dundas guys have done is is sort of taken that idea and made it completely server-based and have it render with a very kind of uh, AJAX-enabled interface in the browser so that you can hit your cubes over the, you know, over the internet or over the web, um, and and have a pretty nice experience in the browser. So uh, they're definitely a player, um, and I think they're going to be a bigger and bigger one. They they were actually very proactive in in contacting me and letting me know about the stuff hmm. because they saw I'm doing some OLAP related talks at, at VS Live and so forth. Um, the big players in this space, though, are uh, ProClarity and Panorama. Um, they have. And they make tools. They make they make uh, very complete front end uh, solutions. Okay. Um, both both rich client and, and browser based. Now, when you say um, solutions, you mean like applications, or um, or components, or what? There are applications that can be run out of the box. There's also a good deal of customization you can do on them. Okay. And I guess that's why I use the word solution. Um, so those those two are uh, are definitely big players, and obviously it's that part of the market that Microsoft's going after, in my opinion, with the with the business scorecard stuff. Yeah. Um, so w- w- one of the things that the business scorecard product really um, calls out is that internally Microsoft has really gotten the BI religion. You're seeing in a number of different product groups. Uh, OLAP coming up again and again. It's actually a huge part of BizTalk Server. The entire component of BizTalk Server called BAM, or Business Activity Monitoring, is just all about MS OLAP cubes on, um, you know, on the transactional data on your business processes. Um, as I said, the Business Score product, Card product is from Office. Um, there are also pieces of Commerce Server that are very, very heavily um, derived from analysis services. Um, we saw some stuff that was kind of secret and maybe going by the wayside um, from the folks who were working on Microsoft Business Framework, and they baked OLAP into, the, into what they were doing at a very 
uh, at a very low level, but also at a very fundamental level. So, uh, and you're also going to see almost all of the different product lines from Microsoft Business Solutions, which I guess is now uh, branded Dynamics. But all of those guys, the Solomons, the the Great Plains, mm. the the Navision, the Exapta, and most definitely Microsoft CRM. They're all doing interesting things with BI. So you're seeing all over the company now um, a, a real uh, enthusiasm around this stuff. And I, I think that's very much why the analysis services offering in 2005 is so, um, is so, is so impressive and so strong. I got to love it when Microsoft eats their dog food. You know the product's only going to get better from all of this. Absolutely, not only because they're kicking the tires, but also because you know they're really pushing the envelope on scenarios, you bet. Um, and that's really important. And, Scratching uh, off the fleas, especially when it's product groups that have a huge user base. It just yeah, it makes a huge difference. It, it makes the thing a lot more a lot more mainstream. Well, I love where we've gotten to here. It sounds like we've really gone all the way around uh, analysis services. Now, you're working on a book, right? <laughs> I am. It's It's been the bane of my existence for a while now. That's the um, way to plug it, man. That's the go. way to plug it. Yeah. <laughs> it, what a sucky uh, process. You must, you must buy this book because otherwise my wife will divorce me. Um, <laughs> for all the hours you've put into it. I'm not it, sure guilting the audience into buying a book is such a good idea, Andrew. <laughs> but it's got to be tough writing a SQL Server book because it's you've been working on this for a long time. So the product's been taking so long. Well, and and of course that didn't really help us, right? Because we had a lot of start and stops. You're you're not really well advised to get heavily into writing your book too early in the product cycle because you'll end up rewriting everything. You'll, re- you'll end up rewriting all your drafts because a lot of stuff changes. For sure. So it really wasn't until May that we could begin this thing in earnest. And to try and cover all of that surface area uh, for May, well, that explains why the product's out and our book isn't. Um, <laughs> I, in my particular case, I'm you know not surprised. Uh, well, this will not come as a great surprise to you, but I'm, I'm working on all, uh, all the BI chapters. Uh, with the exception of one, actually, the data mining chapter is being uh, written by uh, a, a, a really talented person at our, at our firm uh, named Elsie Pan, and she has just done a bang-up job just writing in a single chapter um, all about data mining and, and capturing lots of facets of it. But I've been working on uh, three or four chapters just on OLAP, and uh, I am halfway through what should be my last chapter. Excellent. So, awesome. Then then all we have to do is the editing and get it out to the store. So <laughs> it will it so will any be day called now. it will be called Programming Microsoft SQL Server two thousand and five and it will be published by Microsoft Press. Excellent. Darn it. You <laughs> <laughs> will be done. Dag nabbit. I, I, I think I'm gonna change the question. You know the question that I ask at the end of the interview? What's the coolest thing you downloaded lately? I think I'm going to change it because not a lot of people, you know, downloading whatever. Uh, I'm going to say, you know, what's a tool in your tool chest for general, either general computing use or development or web development, anything, a tool that you've, you've, you know, that you've bought software that you can't live without? 
that I can't live without. Jeez. Or at least one that's cool that, that you want to talk about. I gotta Is say, Scott Hanselman even... the only guy who uses tools? <laughs> um, well, <laughs> I, I mean, it's, it's corny, but I'm, I'm using so many Microsoft tools. I, I spend literally my entire life in Outlook that uh, I guess I'm going with blinders on. Um, no, actually, I'm sorry. I have a really good answer for that question. I just had to think about it a little bit. Okay. Uh, this is something that came from Microsoft Research uh, about a week ago. Uh, I learned about it because uh, Mary Jo Foley uh, blogged about it. And uh, I just told you that I spent about half my life in Outlook. It's geared towards people just like me, uh, especially those of us who travel and are maybe off email for a couple of days, and then come back to a huge pile of it. Uh, there's a product, well, it, it's not so much a product as an experiment, but it, it is a .NET application that the folks at Microsoft Research put together called Snarf. Do you guys know about <laughs> Snarf? No, what is this? No, but now I'm interested because I love the uh, name. It, uh, Snarf, of course, is an acronym, and I can't remember what all five letters stand for. The first two sound, uh, stand for social networking. Social and, network and relationship finder. So either you were holding out on me or you Googled that really, really quick. I just Googled <laughs> it, just like that, and there it was. I'm on the research site. So what this does is it um, it's a triage tool for your inbox. And rather than showing wow. you stuff in chronological order or sorted by thread or sorted alphabetically by sender, it, it, it groups stuff by sender, but it, it lists them in order of what it believes is, is, an import, is your priority in responding to them, and it bases that uh, a lot on the actual volume of email that you send to that particular recipient. Mm, so, I need this. Yeah, I need it too. Presum presumably you are, uh, or I am, because you guys don't have bosses, I do, um, or <laughs> or maybe Richard does. I don't. I don't really know much about your. I have a boss. Life, I have a boss. She lives at my house. There you go. <laughs> so you're probably sending the most email to her. So uh, you're going to see all of her stuff listed at the top. Mm. Um, it will also sort of uh, taxonomize things or, 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 or cut them down by stuff that you got in the last week. That'll kind of be in one window, and then kind of your entire inbox universe will be will be pushed further down. Um, it's, pre it's pretty intriguing. I, I haven't really gotten into it that much. Uh, That's cool. It sounds very looking, cool. I'm looking forward to getting good at it. The, I will say the interface is definitely, it's a, it's a little kludgy. The, I mean, uh, obviously the folks behind this are not, you know, UI people. They're more, they're more algorithm people. Um, you know they're people with pain in their email, though. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And in fact... Um, if you've hit the page up on the Microsoft Research site, Richard, I think it actually starts out with a narrative that uh, talk, you know, brings up a scenario of coming back from vacation, feeling all recharged, and opening up Outlook. Yep. <laughs> and being and 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 just being kind of confronted with you know hundreds or thousands of messages. So this is like email. I've actually shrinks through the email uh, or shrinks through the URL. It's shrinkster.com slash 9TP, 9 
Tango Papa for anybody who wants to take a look at this. Awesome. Thanks, Richard. And, well, I guess that's a show, huh? That's, uh, there is. Yeah, it was a great show. An education for me and for some of my listeners I know. Uh, Andrew, you're very knowledgeable. Thanks for sharing. Pleasure. Nice to be back. Yeah, nice to have you back. And uh, we are going to be off for a couple of for the next couple of weeks, and uh, we'll see you again in 2006 online with all new websites and and a fresh snap in our step. And until then, take it easy. Have a happy holiday season, and uh, that's all. Good night. .NET Rocks can be found online at www.dotnetrocks.com and at msdn.microsoft.com slash dotnetrocks. .NET Rocks is edited each week by Jeff Maciolik, that's me, and Carl Franklin, who is also executive producer. All music heard on .NET Rocks, including Toy Boy, the theme song, is created and produced by Carl Franklin and Franklin Brothers Band. Carl never sleeps. .NET Rocks is produced for Franklin's Net by Plop Productions, providing professional audio and podcasting services online at www.pwop.com. Plop, it's time to get your impact back. Toy Boy! Life is hard, then my time.